Welcome to The Rock Church and World Outreach Center. We pray that this message will strengthen and encourage you. Now, here's a message from Pastor Dan Roth. Let's do this. Let's get into the word. Acts chapter number nine. This is the story of us. We've been talking about how the book of Acts is not just a history lesson. That really, this is where we live here and now. This is where we live today. And these stories are not just stories for us to learn about what happened in the past. No, these are things for us to learn about how to live here and now in the present. And today, the title of this specific message is Life-Changing Questions. Life-Changing Questions. Acts chapter number 9, I'm going to start reading in verse number 1. I'm going to read down through verse number 9. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse number 1, says, Then Saul, hold on, wait, stop. We know this guy, don't we? We've been seeing him pop up a lot lately. This is Saul. This is the one who was the coat check boy when they were stoning Stephen to death. This is the guy who was breathing out murder and threats and coming after and wreaking havoc on the church, the Bible says, dragging men and women out of their homes. This guy was merciless. Not just the men. He went after the women. I mean, this guy is cruel. Then Saul, look at what it says, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way. Now this, speaking of the way, five times in the book of Acts, you'll find it calls Christianity the way. In other words, this is something new. This is something different. This is not the Jewish tradition. This is what they see as the way. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father except by me. So now they're calling themselves, this is the way to get to heaven. This is the way to God. That there is a new way, a new and living way, which has been opened to us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so because they're calling themselves the way, Saul is persecuting them. So that in Damascus, even if he found any who are of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse number three, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Verse four, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Verse number five says, and he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some of your older translations say it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. We said, what is that talking about? That's really actually talking about oxen. And as the oxen would plow, the guy behind the plow, if he saw that that oxen was getting distracted or going off course, he had a little goad. He had a little prick that he would hit the back of that oxen to let it know it's going in the wrong direction. And that little bit of pain would cause it to step in line. But if the oxen didn't like that, if he really wanted to go that direction, he might kick at that pain. He might kick back to try and stop what was going on back there. And when he would do that, that goad would actually drive further in and it would hurt him more. And so eventually he would have to walk in submission. In the same way, Jesus comes and he confronts this young terrorist who's terrorizing the church, Saul. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not the church, not the way, not Christians, what does he say? He says, why are you persecuting me? That shows me that Jesus takes his church very personally. And did you know that we are the body of Christ? If you take your fist and you punch my arm, yes, you punched my arm, but I would say, why did you punch me, right? In the same way, here's Saul terrorizing the church. He's ripping it to shreds. He's going after it. And he's just merciless, and he's not going to deter from his course. And so Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting 
me. When you come against the body of Christ, you come against Jesus Christ himself. That's why Jesus stood when Stephen was being stoned to death by the Jews. is because that was coming against him himself. Jesus said, if you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And so here we see that Saul's persecuting the church. And Jesus shows up. He knocks him down. He blinds him. And he starts to talk to him. And he says, why are you persecuting me? I am the Lord Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. I've been trying to give you indicators of the way that you should be going. When you heard Stephen's prayer, there was a little prick. There was a little pain inside of you. Why is he praying for forgiveness for the people who are killing him? What is going on? That should have been an indicator. That should have been a realization that Saul, you, you don't need to be going this way any longer. Saul, you need, to, you need to go this way. But you kicked against it rather than walked with it. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the ghost. Let's read on in the next verse. Continues on and says this, verse number six. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Verse eight, then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Verse number nine, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. He was so astonished, so shocked that he could just sit there and think about what happened. I could imagine the things running through his head. Wait a second, all this time I've been wrong. Everything that I've learned, everything that I've studied, everything that I had thought about Messiah was all off because Messiah has come. I just met him. I just saw him with my own eyes, but now I'm seeing nothing. What's going on? This is real. This is true. And if I've been persecuting this way, and this is the way, then I've been wrong. He's just sitting there, mulling these things over on the inside probably grieving, probably crying, probably calling out. We know from the Bible that he was praying. He was talking to God about life and about what was going on. He was just simply sitting there for three days, and he could do nothing except just sit there astonished. But notice that Jesus shows up, and I don't believe that Jesus had a booming voice. I don't believe that he was angry with Saul when he was talking to him. Notice he says his name twice, right? You know, one of the other times Jesus said someone's names twice was with Martha. Do you remember that? Martha was serving. She's running around the house. Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus. How dare she? And here's Martha and all this, you know, she's got the crock pot going. She's got the microwave going. She's got the stove going. She's running around. She just cleaned the bathroom and she's locking it to make sure that nobody uses it before Jesus uses it. You know what I mean? She's like, all y'all better not even get your butt prints off my couch right now. I just, just smoothed that all out. Uh, Why don't you go sit outside somewhere else? Listen, we're going to have dinner in a minute. Get your finger out of the cake. You know, she's running around the house and, and finally she confronts Jesus and she's in such a flurry. She's like, tell my sister to help me serve. She just sitting around doing nothing. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, right? She's chosen the needful thing. You're concerned with much serving. But this is what you ought to be doing is sitting at my feet and hearing my voice. I believe that the same thing was happening here with Saul, that Saul was in such a rage. He was in such a flurry of activity and he couldn't wait to get to Damascus. And Jesus had to stop him and say, Saul, Saul, why why are you persecuting me? And it was such an astonishing thing. You know, the whispers of God are louder than the shouts of man. God's voice thunders even in the calmest of moments. And here Jesus with tenderness and with love confronts this terrorist who is so off and so on the wrong course. 
And this one question from God revolutionized and changed this man's entire life that turned from being Saul of Tarsus, Saul the terrorist of the church, to eventually becoming Paul the apostle. That's right, if you haven't made that connection yet, this is the guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This is the great apostle who most likely was the one he was talking about that was caught up into the third heaven and heard inexpressible things which are not lawful for a man to repeat. This is that same Paul who went out and planted churches and this one who miracles and signs and wonders took place. This is the one who the, the, the snake came out of the fire and bit him and he shook it off back into the fire and nothing happened to him. And they thought that he was a god. This is the same one who was shipwrecked This is the one who was in the deep for three days. This is the one who suffered persecution, whom the Jews and the Gentiles incited riots and went after him and tried to beat him up and leave him for dead. This is that same Paul. And it all started with a question. See, there are questions that can be life-changing. We need to understand that asking the right questions is vitally important. Tony Cook recently wrote a post about a time when he was a young minister Tony Cook is an amazing man of God, great teacher. He's been at our church many times. And uh, Tony had been ministering, and somebody came to him and talked to him and and, uh, said, hey, we've been having a debate, and I wanted to find out what you had to say about the biblical, uh, you know, terminology and use of suicide. Can you you tell me about what the Bible has to say about suicide? So Tony, being a teacher, very gifted man of God, expressed what the Bible has to say about it, went through some scriptures and some different things there, explained it to him. The man thanked him and went off. Tony found out later that man went and committed suicide himself. And Tony, as a young minister, learned a lesson that it was important to find out what was behind the question. That this man, if he would have known was suicidal, then he would have ministered to him in a different way. Not just giving him what the word says, but ministering to his value and his worth and working with him and trying to get him to come into a new way of thinking about his own life. See, essentially, this man most likely was asking for permission from the Bible to do what was in his heart to do. Tony thought, if I could just ask this man the question, why do you ask that question? It would have changed the entire conversation. Remember a time that I went up to uh, Canada with Pastor Jim for a men's event, and while we were there, they had a Q&A time with Pastor. They were talking specifically about business. Pastor Jim had done a lot of real estate, and did a lot of business on the side, uh, in addition to being a pastor here at The Rock for uh, the years that he was here. And so they were asking him about how to be successful in business, and he was giving them some principles, godly principles, uh, you know, some practical things that they could do. And one man stood up, and I remember it, because he stood up and he said, do you think that Christian brothers should get into business together? Now, Pastor Jim, being a seasoned minister at this time, saw right through the question, and led by the Spirit of God, heard right about the heart of this man. And he said, you know what, I don't think so. And here's the reason why, because if you get into business with other Christian brothers in this church, and the business fails, those men are going to be disappointed with God, they're going to leave the church, they're not going to like you, and then you're going to be ashamed, and you're going to leave the church, and none of you are going to be in business anymore, and none of you are going to be in the church anymore, and that's what's really important is you guys keeping on with God rather than making money. And so he said, I don't think that you should be getting into business and bringing other people in because you've got the wrong heart in that matter. You want them to fund your business rather than blessing others. And so he said, don't do it. See, he saw right past the question. One time we were here at a men's breakfast. I remember it was a number of years ago, and we did a Q&A. We liked doing that at the end, and I was actually the guy answering the questions. And so one young man stood up, and he asked me a question about uh, dating in the Bible and about being unequally yoked. 
And I was opening my mouth to answer the question when all of a sudden the Spirit of God led me in a different direction. I ended up asking him a question. I said, well, wait a second. Are you asking that because you want to date an unbeliever? And the whole room erupted like, <laughs> he's all right through you, dude. He knows you. God's got your number. And sure enough, this young man wanted to date an unbeliever. And he was hoping to hear that it was okay to do some missionary dating. You know what missionary dating is? You go out and you date an unbeliever and bring him to church, and hopefully that'll get him saved. You know what? That's going to happen. You hang around the mud hole long enough, you're going to fall in. They won't end up in church. You'll end up out of church. Missionary dating does not work. Can the single people say amen right now? Come on, ladies. Come on, gentlemen. All right? You want to find a spouse, find one that's more in love with Jesus, that Jesus has to turn their head to notice you. You know what I'm saying? That's the kind of spouse you want. That's all for free right there. All right? And the married people said amen. Amen. That's the way it ought to be. The right question can revolutionize your life. And in the same way, I believe that this question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I believe that that changed Saul's entire trajectory while he was on the earth. It turned everything around. And Saul, in response to Jesus, asked two amazing questions that I believe these are, are you listening? Come on, online, make sure to focus in, lean in. If the volume's not up on your screen right now, you need to turn it up right now because these two questions are the most important questions anyone could ever ask in their lifetime. Did you hear that? These are the two most important questions that any of us, while we're here on the earth, will ever grapple with in our existence. And so we need to understand what's behind these questions and why they're so important for our lives because when we settle these questions, everything else in your life will get settled. Your marriage will get settled. Your business, your endeavors, your future, your focus, your parenting, all comes together in these two questions. Today, I want to unpack these things for us so that we can have the right trajectory, just like Saul becoming Paul. You and I can have the right trajectory as well. First question is this, is who are you, Lord? Very first question out of his mouth. Remember, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's on the ground. He's blinded by the light. He looks up. He sees the Lord, and he says, who are you, Lord? Now, he didn't call him Lord like we call him Lord, right? Lord meaning master. Lord meaning somebody who's greater than himself. Lord meaning the one who was in control of the situation at that moment. You understand? Because Saul didn't have the power to stand underneath the weight of the glory that was in that space at that moment. He was knocked down. And that light shone all around. And later on in the book of Acts, it says it was brighter than the sun at midday. That's how glorious Jesus was at that moment in his appearance. And so he recognizes the authority on this person, but he doesn't know who the person is. So he says, who are you, Lord? You remember Jesus asked this question of his disciples. He said, who do they say that I am out there? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. Others think that you're just a good man, a teacher, right? But then Jesus turned the question around on his disciples, and he said, who do you say that I am? See, all of us are going to have to come to grips with this question of who is Jesus? Is Jesus a good teacher? Was Jesus just a prophet? Was he just a good man? Was he a promoter of love? Was Jesus just a historical figure? Was he on the same level as Buddha or Muhammad? Who is this Jesus? 
Well, I think in order to find out who Jesus is, we really have to understand what Jesus said about himself. If you want to turn with me into the Gospel of John, Big John, John chapter number 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he's having a discourse with them. He's talking to them about the last things. They've walked with him for three years. They've seen his way of life. They've heard the parables that he's taught. They've seen the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. And they had come to the conclusion themselves that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, that was Peter's response to Jesus' question. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. They came to that conclusion. And so now here Jesus knows they've had the Last Supper. They're headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will be, uh, he'll be uh, persecuted by the Sanhedrin where they'll come and they'll arrest him and where he'll be betrayed by Judas. And so here he is heading there. And so in essence, this is Jesus' last instructions to the disciples. And while he speaks with them, he's no longer speaking to them in parables. He's just speaking openly and plainly because they know him, they've been with him, and these are things that they need to know before he goes to the cross and before he ascends to heaven. Listen to what he says about himself. They had just talked, and he said, I'm going, and the way that I go, you know. And they say, well, wait a second. How do we know? Thomas chimes in. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes to the Father except by me. Now, Philip steps up, and Philip says something very spiritual. It sounds wonderful. Listen to what Philip says in John chapter 14, verse number 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. I would have walked over and patted Philip on the back and said, amen, amen. That was good, Philip. Just show us the Father, and that will be sufficient for us, right? Sounds really pious, doesn't it? Sounds really great. Sounds awesome. But look at what Jesus responds back to Philip in verse number 9. Jesus said to him, have, what's that little one-letter word up there on the overhead screen? So you guys see that? What's that word? I'm sorry, shout it out at me. What is it? Okay, I know this is really hard, basic stuff that we're working with today. But Jesus responds to the question about the Father with have I. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known who? I'm sorry, the Father? The Holy Spirit? No, no, no. We're talking about Father God. Show us the Father. That's sufficient. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known who? Me, Philip? Jesus just made the most important statement that we will ever see about who he is. That shows me that Jesus, are you ready for this? Ready online? Jesus is God. Look at the rest of his statement. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Mm. Right there, Jesus just called himself God. Don't get it wrong. Jesus is God. If you don't have that settled in your heart, everything else won't be settled. Everything else in the Bible, everything else the Bible has to say, the authority of the scriptures, none of that matters if you don't think that Jesus is God. Plain and simple. I will fight you to my dying breath on that, tooth and nail, because that is the crux of our faith, that God himself gave his life on the cross in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the crux of our faith. 
Jesus is God. I almost can't say it enough today. Jesus is God. He claimed it himself. C.S. Lewis, famed author from England, wrote in Mere Christianity, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Can I give you one more proof scripture for this? Just because we're going down the rabbit hole today, seeing something that maybe you had never seen before in your Bible, but today I believe that God is opening up the blind eyes. I believe that God is shining his glory in this place today in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, verse number 33, verse number 33, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people and he's talking to them about the sheep and how he's leading them out and how he's the shepherd. And he's telling them that the sheep hear his voice and he's got sheep of another fold that are coming after and they're scratching their heads and they're going, what are you talking about? And then Jesus makes a statement that's no longer a parable. It's no longer hidden language. No, Jesus makes a bold, upfront statement. In John chapter 10, verse number 30, he says, the Father and I are one. We have one God. We do not have three gods. We have three in one, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is one God. Bless the Lord, Israel. The Lord your God is one, right? I and the Father are one. Father and me, me and the Father, we're one. And because of this, verse number 31 in response, look at what it says. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Now, the Jews were always trying to kill Jesus, weren't they? Trying to throw him off the edge of a cliff, trying to get a hold of him to kill him, trying to plot to kill him. And they never could. Why? Because Jesus was in complete control of his life. There were times where Jesus would just walk right through them. It was almost like he just disappeared. Boom, he's gone. He was blinded from their eyes. He just walked right through the middle of all of them. It's not his time yet. So here they are, and it says, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Why? Why? Jesus, in verse number 32, responds, at my father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? Jesus lived a perfect life. He says, I've done all these miracles, all these signs, I've done a lot of good. What what part of that means that you have the right to kill me? Verse number 33, they replied, we're stoning you, not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Not only is Jesus his witness of himself, but the Jews' witness. They knew what he was talking about. And today, we need to know what he's talking about. We need to settle the question, who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus? But not just who is Jesus in the Bible, not just who is Jesus outside. Who is Jesus to me personally? Is Jesus my Lord? Is he the Lord of my life? Is he the one that I'm gaining every bit of my direction, my essence, my breath, my life from? Is he Lord of my life. Who are you, Lord? And it brings us to the second question that Saul asked after he settled the question of who is he? He says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And look at what he says next. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? See, when you settle the first question, the second question comes right on on its heels. 
The first question is the most important question, but the second question springs forth from it because if Jesus is God and if Jesus is Lord of my life, then Lord, what do you want me to do? If you're in charge, if you're in control, then guess what? I can't be any longer. I can't do life my way any longer. I cannot live like the rest of the world lives. We're all just looking out for the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Because you and I were bought with a price. And we're no longer our own. Jesus paid for us with his very blood. And now we are bond servants of Christ. And we no longer have authority over our own lives. Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, then he's boss. And if he's the boss, then Lord, what do you want me to do? And throughout the ages, man has been searching for purpose, hasn't he? What is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Is it just some existential experience? Is it just us floating through a dream? Maybe someday we'll wake up in the matrix? See, man has been searching for purpose all throughout the ages. And yet, purpose outside of God will always lead you to selfish interests. You say, that's not true. There are many philanthropists and people who have given lots of money to help out humanity. Yeah, why are they doing that? Some of them for a tax write-off. Some of them so that other people will like them and think that they're doing good stuff. There's a mass behind it of man-pleasing. Some of them are doing it because it's the right thing to do and their calculations and their understanding, but there's no purpose behind it. It's just, this is what I should be doing rather than this is what God told me to do. See, any purpose outside of God's purposes will end up empty or it'll end up vain or it'll end up self-centered because many people don't go the way of philanthropy. Even though that's wonderful and even though that's the right answer and even though that's what people should be doing, most of the time they're going to end up doing stuff that's going to help them. They're going to build up wealth for themselves. They're going to build up fame for themselves. They're going to go out and find experiences and things that please themselves. Purpose outside of God is no purpose at all. We need to settle the first question so that we can settle the second. Just recently, my brother and I went over to my mom's house and we were cleaning out the garage. She's getting ready to have a yard sale and so she's cleaning out a bunch of stuff and my dad, who, who passed away earlier this year, my dad was a tinkerer, if you will. This man was a jack of all trades, right? This guy was a master at pretty much everything. The guy was on genius level, if you ask me, okay? He could get computers running. He t- took me to his work one time. He had nine computers talking to each other in the middle of the night. We were there at 4 a.m. They're all flashing, talking to each other and then a report printed out all this kind of stuff. He wrote all the programs. This guy was insane. He he could work in mechanics. He could work in art. He could work in music. I mean, the guy just did everything. And so here we are cleaning out the garage. Now, this is not the garage on the overhead screens behind me. That's an antique store, but it's just a lot of mishmash, you know. I wish that my dad's garage looked like that because that's a whole lot cleaner than what my dad's garage looked like. And so as we're going through, I mean, my hands were so grimy and dirty afterwards. I'm washing them off, and there's just this nasty sludge going down the sink, washing my hands. But my dad had all this stuff, and as we're going through all this stuff, I mean, the computer stuff, the ham radio stuff. You say, Pastor, what's a ham radio? We don't have time for that right now, okay? Uh, the, the, the communications stuff from the ages. He had stuff from his dad who was a tinkerer. I mean, I pulled out a slide rule. Once again, we don't have time. Look it up on Google, all right? Had a slide rule, and my dad was proud that he still knew how to use it. We're going through stuff, and my mom's going, do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want this? And my brother would look at her in shock and disbelief and go, Mom, we don't even know what that is. Started opening up his, his drawers to his, his, his toolkit, you know what I mean? 
this big old stack. We're opening up these drawers and all the car stuff coming out. And we're like, why do you even need that? Like, I know that does something, but I have no clue what that does. Stuff was still in the package. We'd be looking through the package going, this is odd. Like, what do you do with this? But my dad had it. Why? Just in case he ever needed it. It wasn't like he was using it every day. It was just like, just in case somebody breaks down outside or one of the boys brings their car over, we need to do this. Man, we're going to do it. We're going to measure the gap on the spark plugs. Who does that? My dad does that. And so we had all this stuff that we're going, Mom, just put it in the art sale. Group it with the car stuff. Group it with the radio stuff. Group it with the computer stuff. Group it with the art stuff. Why? Because we had no idea the purpose. And I believe there are a lot of people who are walking around living their lives that have no idea what the purpose is. They're kind of just sitting there in the drawer, sitting there on the shelf, kind of waiting by and going, I guess I'll just buy time until I can die and go be with Jesus. And yet when you settle the first question, the second question should come naturally. Lord, what do you want me to do? The Apostle Paul, we're counting the story later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 26, verse number 16 through verse number 18. I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation. A lot more transpired, and yet in this portion of the story, we only really get the quick questions and the direction. Because Jesus gave them one step. He told them, I want you to go into the city and wait, and you'll be told what to do. We'll describe what happens next, next time we gather together on this subject. But what actually took place that the Apostle Paul remembers as he recounts the story in Acts chapter 26, starting in verse number 16, Jesus is speaking, he says, now get to your feet, for I've appeared to you to appoint you. Ever say, appoint. Type it in the, the comment section right now, appoint. I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness two things, a twofold purpose that he gave him right away. Servant and witness. Servant and witness. You are my servant. You're going to do what I say to do. You're going to go where I say to go. You're going to be who I tell you to be. And you are my witness. The things that you have seen, you're going to tell others about. You're going to give a testimony about who I am. You will use your mouth to declare. You will be my servant and witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. Verse 17, and I will rescue you. If I was Saul at that moment, I said, wait, 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 Lord, can, can we just rewind for a second? Hold on. You're going to rescue me? I'm sorry. What does that mean specifically? Can, can we have some particulars? I, I need to know what, what's going on, right? And so Jesus goes on and look at what he says. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Paul was probably shocked at that moment because for the Jews... The Gentiles going, you, you weren't supposed to mingle with them. You weren't supposed to talk to them. You weren't supposed to have lunch at their house. You weren't supposed to know they mama. You weren't supposed to know nothing about them, right? You could not mix in with them. You were just supposed to be a good Jewish person in your good Jewish bubble, and that would be good with you and good with God. But Jesus breaks that bubble wide open. He says, I'm going to rescue you from your own people. The Jews are going to hate you. But guess who else? The Gentiles too. Isn't that wonderful? And by the way, yeah, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. So get ready, bud. Because it's happening. Verse number 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people. Once again, he talks about the purpose who are set apart by faith in me. God is the one who assigns our purpose. God assigned Saul the apostleship to go to the Gentiles. God is the one who showed him how many things he must suffer for his name. 
See, we don't get to choose our purpose. God gets to choose our purpose. God, why did you make me this way? God, why did you make me this color? God, why did you put me in this family? God, why did you put me in this economic situation? God, why did you set me in this time, in this place? God, why, 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 why? And we're looking at it like I was looking at those tools in the door going, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't see how it works. But God knows exactly. You are here for such a time as this. You were set on this planet for a purpose. God knew your name. He knew your parents' names. He knew the color that was going to be your skin. He knew how much education you were going to get or not get. He knew how much money you would have or don't have. God knew all of the associations and relationships around you. God knew the climate of the economy and the politics and the world systems that he was going to set you in. And God made you that way and he created you that way because God is going to use you for a purpose and for a cause on the earth to be his servant and to be his witness. God didn't make a mistake when he made you. It was no mistake that your mom didn't abort you. I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know who I'm talking to right now. You thought you were a mistake. And you might have wished that your mom would have done away with you before you ever came on the planet. You identified with the words of Job, cursed be the day. Cursed be the person who came and told my parents it's a boy. My goodness, God knew that you were going to be in this place. He stopped those thoughts in their minds. He stopped that ungodly plot of the enemy to kill you before your time. Why? Because God has an appointment for you. There is divine appointments on the earth. There is a purpose. There is a destiny. There is a plan. And when you settle who is Jesus, if he's your Lord, then ask him the question, God, what do you want me to do? Thank you for listening to the Rock Church and World Outreach Center. If this message spoke to you, please share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find more information at www.rockchurch.com.